I'm Baz, and this is RuneQuest Year Zero. And we're back in Glorantha, back with the starter set, and this time we're into the very final book, Book 4, Adventures. Been really looking forward to getting into this one. This is, <laughs> in some ways though, it's the last chance for the starter set to really get me involved in Glorantha. And, and I think I'm just about to be ready to be pushed over the edge, so I don't think this is going to be a hard sell. But let's see what we've got. Okay, I think this is the thickest book of the lot. Same formatting as all the other ones, kind of a magazine format, I suppose. And as with the rest, really lovely cover art. So this one looks like it's got a band of adventurers or travellers outside what must be the gates to Johnstown. I could tell that from the walls and the kind of the, the silhouette of the city beyond them. Um, the adventurers contain an interesting group. One of them is riding a zebra, always fascinating. And we've got a couple on foot. And yeah, it does a really good job. It looks like it's in the snowy weather which is never something I really associate with Glorantha, because in my head it's always got people in, in well, very little bronze armour, loads of flesh on show, and they're walking across the plains or the sands. So, yeah, interesting to see a bit of snowy weather, a bit of a wintry vibe going on. No leaves on the trees, snow on the ground, etc. Anyway, none of that really matters. What matters is the adventures on the inside. Now, just to offer up a couple of bona fides here, I love published adventures, which... <laughs> in some way makes it a minority opinion, but I almost exclusively run published adventures. I do my own stuff, of course I do, but actually I've always been a big fan of reading through adventures and running it through in my mind. I can read them in the same way that some people read novels, I suppose, or watch films. I really enjoy letting the story unwind in my mind, and it's almost like a solo event just reading it through, and then bringing it to the table for other people to play through. That's been that's been my hobby career, really. And I've done all the big ones, all the small ones. Oh, must be thousands of the things by now. So I, I like to think I know what I'm talking about when I'm reading for an adventure. But we'll see. Free, feel free to disagree. I'm sure you will. Call in. Um, let's see what we've got. We've got three adventures in the book. The first one's called A Rough Landing. And we're pretty much straight into it. There's a couple of introductory pages, and then we go straight into this adventure. And the sidebar is first time here, question mark. Well, yes, it is. Thank you for asking. And it says that a rough landing is best suited for a group of three to six players and you, the games master. If you've got prior experience of Grand Thrall RuneQuest, you might find the experience of use. But the new edition of RuneQuest is set several years after prior editions. The political landscape has changed dramatically in this time. Yeah, they do love talking about their years, don't they? So this adventure takes place right after the battle at Dangerford, which was the adventure that we all played through um, in book three, the solo quest. So the idea is you play your solo quest, that kind of levels up your adventurer, gets you a bit used to things, and then here you are in your first adventure. But does that mean that every every player character has to do that? It's, it's a kind of unusual kind of setup, isn't it? I guess at this point, I really should be thinking of getting three to six players uh, around the table to play this scenario having them all go through the solo adventure would seem like a weird thing to do so i'm going to guess that uh, if i've got newbies as players and i'm a newbie gm not an unreasonable thing to suggest as a starter set that actually we'll see how well this gets people into the game okay so we've got four bullet points before we even get going and i think they're important 
Combat is not something to be rushed into lightly. Violence has its consequences. Point number one. Okay? Point number two. Passions such as honour and loyalty are important guides to behaviour. Number three. Social commitments and connections are critical to survival. And point number four, not everything is as straightforward as it seems. Okay, I really like that these bullet points have landed very, very early on in this adventure. In fact, I think these bullet points probably should have been in the first page of the first book. Because this is what we're after. This is what's making Glorantha and RuneQuest the little bit different to your generic vanilla fantasy game. They're all good points. We'll see whether they actually follow through on these things. But this is what you want to know. When someone says, why should I play RuneQuest? These four things, amongst others, should be there in the list. They're good ideas. They are definitely trying to differentiate this from your D&Ds, your Warhammers, your GURPS, and your toolkit games. Combat, not to be rushed into lightly, fine. Passions and honour and loyalty, definitely. Social commitments and connections, yes. Not everything's straightforward as it seems. That one seems a little bit vague. I think you could probably apply that bullet point to most scenarios, realistically. Possibly not feng shui, but even then, not everything is always as straightforward as it seems. There's also a reminder that Glorantha is a canvas to create our own adventures upon. This one's going to use Johnstown. And there's a reiteration of the mantra, your Glorantha will vary. It says here, it's better to make something up than to slow down gameplay by flipping pages trying to find the right answer. The right answer is whatever you want it to be. Okay. All right, let's get started on this adventure. So the idea is you hand out your pre-gen adventurers. People pick those and you have a little bit of time um, with Glorantha. There's some really nice introductory Talk aloud text, it's all in italics, as is the fashion, has been for a while, and it takes you through what Glorantha is. And that's nice. Again, this is this seems like it seems like this would have been even better right at the beginning. This is actually a really nice introduction to what's going on in the world and how it works. And then we're into the adventure proper. So clearly, clearly there's going to be spoilers from here on in. I'm not going to spend forever talking about the detail of the adventures, but obviously I'm gonna to have to go through what happens in it. So if you really do want to play this adventure and you think that finding out about some of the major plot points is going to be a spoiler for you, then flip forward a few minutes and hopefully I'll catch up with you at the end. Still with us? Good. All right, let's talk about what a rough landing is. I should say from the outset that I actually really like this adventure. There's not a huge amount to it. That might be part of why I like it. So let me give you the major, major things that happen. You start off. Um, wandering through town, wandering through a market, and you witness a bust-up. And some trolls, some drunken trolls, are going on a bit of a rampage. So they're knocking things over, uh, they're getting a bit violent, they're kind of garrulous, and, um, and they're making a right fuss. The conceit of the adventure is that you get involved in that and try and calm them down or subdue them, or whatever it is you try and do. Because of that, you come to the attention of the town authorities. And the town authorities offer you a job, essentially. And your job is to head out into the uh, into the hinterlands. So you head out of town, off across a river, go to an old abandoned farm, 
and it's been abandoned because it's been taken over by bad monsters. And your job is to rescue the farmers and the community they're in from the monsters. And the monsters, well, I won't tell you what the monsters are. It doesn't really matter what the monsters are, but they're RuneQuest monsters. They're Glorantha monsters. That's it. That's the adventure. Now, nothing wrong with that. And as I said at the top, I really quite like this adventure because it's simple. There's not much there to it, really. You've really got two encounters in kind of D&D language, I suppose, which may or may not come to blows. They probably will, if we're honest. And you've got like an interstitial encounter between them, leading you from one to the next. That's not much of a... Well, it's linear. It's not even a long line, is it? It probably doesn't even classify as linear. But it's really nicely done. And what I really like about it is that it is actually quite Gloranthan. It's not exactly like the kind of stuff that you would see in any other fantasy game or anything else. Although the plot is so straightforward, you could lift this and drop it into your Star Wars game if you wanted, or or almost any game. Come across something, get noticed, get offered to do something else, go and deal with that threat. Classic stuff. So, where's the Glorantha in it? Well, the Glorantha is in the picks of location, setting, and the opposition. So the opposition in the market fight are trolls. Now, trolls... It's a generic word, really, in many ways, isn't it? When I think troll, I suppose I think back to the stuff I saw on telly in the 70s as a kid. And later on, I might think of trolls from D&D. But the D&D trolls aren't really very trolly. Um, I might think about the sort of stuff that you see in those Scandinavian games, like Vason and, and that kind of thing. You get the idea. But Gloranthan trolls are a little bit different from all of that. And this is one of the things that Gloranthan fans really like to talk about, is how deep and rich the culture is of some of the background in their favourite game. And with trolls, it's a good thing to have because I can kind of get behind what a troll is without too much reading. And I can understand what's different about these trolls without getting bogged down in too much stuff. So, for example... Trolls are called Uz, U-Z, Uz, Uz in their language. They're an elder race, much older than humans, and they have different types of trolls. Dark trolls, great trolls, mistress race trolls, with capital letters, and others. Um, The trolls are dwindling due to an ancient curse, and the children born to trolls are diminutive, stunted weaklings. They're called troll kin. Uz keeps themselves, but higher on as mercenaries. They are creatures of darkness, capital darkness, the rune of darkness. They shun daylight, but don't suffer harmful effects from it. Um, They can see in the dark. Their written language is tactile, so it can be read in total darkness. They can eat and drink anything, and often eat trollkin. They despise the touch of iron, and usually go armoured in lead. And these particular trolls are all male, and they bear runes of darkness, death and disorder. Now, that's pretty cool. So in in a few lines, and I've just read them out to you, really, I've got a handle on the fact that these are big, big fellas, all kind of like muscle and stupidity in a way, but they're not just orcs and ogres, which is what they would be in a lot of other classic fantasy games. I wonder how much of that would come across to a new player of the game, though. 
because almost everything that I've said out loud just then about the us probably won't come out in the description that I would do as a GM. Really, I don't know how easy it is to make the players think about not necessarily getting their swords out and charging at these things. My initial questions, and I've said this a few times about Grantha, is what are we supposed to do when we meet stuff? Are we expected to draw blades and attack? Are we expected to call the authorities? Are we expected to maybe look to our character sheets for some kind of cult allegiance? In other words, what do we do? And I think the reason that we would ask that is because what do we do that's not going to get us into trouble? <laughs> you kind of need to know your boundaries as a PC in a lot of games, don't you? And I think anyone brought up on any kind of tabletop gaming, when they see great big grey-skinned spiky things eating chickens and smashing over stools, will probably run to attack. And that's fine because the adventure gives you all of the stuff you need to handle that particular fight. But there's also, and this is a problem with the with the adventure, it takes about four or five pages, quite a lot of words to explain about all the options if you don't have a fight with them or if you do and then you change your mind or if you want to try and negotiate or if you want to be standoffish and not get involved at all. And although it is good that those things are considered, there's an awful lot of words devoted to the possibilities. When really, it doesn't appear to be that complicated an encounter. Now we get the great big stack blocks as well. So it turns out that that RuneQuest is a game of stat blocks. It really is. Everything seems to be built in the same way that a PC is. There doesn't really appear to be much of a shorthand. And that's okay because it's all printed out in front of me. And I'm, but I'm nervous that if I were running my own games, how on earth do you write all this stuff down in note format? I guess you don't put everything down, do you? Um, for example, there's a Dark Troll Mercenaries. Um, and it's got listed um, that they can climb at 40% that they can jump at 40%, that they have, let's see, they can speak dark tongue. And these are just examples of stuff that I just don't think are ever really going to come into play, but they're listed there for absolute completeness. I wonder if there was a possibility in the starter set for something stripped down. Never mind. Okay, so you have this big old ruckus one way or another with these trolls, and that's all cool. And um, then we get to meet the authorities. And I like authorities in towns. I think they're a good thing to have in fantasy towns. And this is where, thank goodness, all of that stuff about Johnstown that had me yawning a couple of books back starts to come to life. So we're going to meet a couple of NPCs. We're going to meet Georgia Latish. We're going to meet Ongarin Holdfast. We're going to meet some of the people that run this place that were introduced in that previous book. But now they've got voices. Now they've got something to say. Now they've got something to do. And depending on how the PCs acted in the first encounter with the Dark Trolls, will flavour this whole interaction. This is the interstitial scene in between the two of them. And that's nice. That's good that there's different ways of presenting this, this encounter, this scene, uh, depending on whether they were violent or successful or heroic, etc., 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 it does mean that it takes another four pages <laughs> of, of reading to get to the bottom of exactly how this encounter is handled. But okay, it's a decent read. I've got to say, actually, it's really well written. There's just a lot of it. Um, 
you would probably want to take some notes because I doubt you're going to want to run a highlighter across your magazine type book. I wouldn't, but you probably want to take some notes. It's all there. It's a decent read. And as you go through it as a nascent GM, you are considering what it would look like, what you would describe, etc. So it's doing a good job from that point of view. But as a reference material, flicking backwards and forwards through this during a game would feel a bit boggy. Anyway, a job is offered to the PCs. Let's say they take it, because if they don't take it, we're not playing an adventure tonight, and that's silly. So we're going to head out of town to a place called Murnia's Landing. There is a very short kind of overland travel bit. Um, there's nothing actually happens on the way. And then we get to a, a kind of a wide open adventure place, which has got four locations spread out across a sprawling farm or a community of farms. And um, the adventurers will go looking. And out of those four locations, let's see, one, two, three, four, uh, five, six, yeah, six or seven pages to read all about these locations. And again, that's too much. There's, um, It wouldn't take very much at all to describe this stuff. And I, I guess if you're an old school player, and RuneQuest is an old school game, this could have been done in way, way, way fewer words. And I appreciate it's meant for starters, but I don't know if all of this extra wordage is particularly newbie-friendly. It's just really thorough. Like, really thorough. Anyway, eventually, and this is where things get complicated, at some point, your adventurers are going to meet the baddies. And they are proper baddies, to be fair. And they are no doubt going to end up fighting with them. I can't believe they wouldn't. And this is where things get a little bit more advanced. For a starter scenario, this adventure now starts demanding quite a bit of you as the GM. You've got these four farmsteads, you've got the bad guys, and the adventure says that the bad guys are basically going to start um, making little signs of their presence. And you've got a little bit of guidance about how to make that work, like shadows seen out the corner of your eye, rustling bushes, maybe you hear something in the distance. And as GM, you're supposed to ramp all of this up until you fold it into an encounter with with the bad guys. That's not trivial. That's not trivial. And certainly for a newbie GM, that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. Pressing that accelerator and pressing that brake and holding on to the pace of the adventure is quite a nuanced skill, I think. I think perhaps it might just have been easier to just put the bad guys in locations and let them be there when people show up. And I know that's kind of quantum NPC, you know, they're not doing anything until the door opens, but it's a classic trope for a reason, which is that it's easy, it's simple to run. This adventure takes the other tack of trying to make it organic and living and flexible but it does that at a complexity cost. And similarly, it then offers an opportunity for some of the trolls that you met in Encounter 1 to be back on your side or as further antagonist and to try and blend it all together. It's a clever, it's a clever, neat idea. I really like it as an idea. I don't think it's necessarily simple to run as a GM for your first ever adventure. And that's it. The whole thing's then wrapped up and you go back to town and you get some silver... And you've started. You're off and adventuring. So overall, I think this is a really nice scenario. Let's go back to those bullet points. Combat is not something to be rushed into lightly, as violence has its consequences. 
Well, you are offered the opportunity to rush straight into a combat with some bloody great trolls in moment one, and I guess you will find out the consequences if you start losing legs, heads and arms and reaching into the box to get new characters 20 minutes into the game. So I suppose they have followed through on that one a little bit. And then later on, when you meet the bads outside the farm, it would be interesting to see what, what players do, having been trained on the lethality of combat in Encounter 1. Bullet point number two was about passion such as honour and loyalty as guides to behaviour. I would have preferred to see more call-outs in the adventure to those things because this adventure knows what the PCs are. We can't generate our own PCs for this adventure. We've got the 14 choices. Wouldn't it be good to make much more uh, call-out directly to the skills, capabilities, attributes of the characters that come in the box? Because some of those are not going to have any real honour or loyalty to this situation as far as I could tell. And other ones do. So perhaps some firmer recommendations and some more concrete links, I think. Because if they are important guides to behaviour, then we need to showcase that. Social commitments and connections are critical to survival. I don't see any of that in this adventure. I'm sure that's all to come. It doesn't seem to be that that's a thing, but we will see. And then finally, not everything is as straightforward as it seems. Uh, yes, it is. It is in this adventure, to be honest. It really is. <laughs> there's, there's not much of a puzzle to be unpicked here, to be fair. There really isn't. It's kind of obvious what's happening. And that's fine. I don't think that's a problem at all. But yeah, a really decent first adventure. One that I would look forward to playing. Um, I've read it a couple of times now. I've got my head round it. I do need to make a few more notes. But I reckon I could play this, and I reckon it would be uh, a really nice first adventure. Grab those characters, get involved in a scrap, try not to die, have a chat, get involved in another scrap, try not to die. You're now playing RuneQuest. So we're underway. Adventure 2 a fire in the darkness. So this is the middle adventure of three. It's significantly longer than the first one. There is more to it, and it's got a very, very different tone. Let me just give you the very first paragraph. It doesn't take long. A series of mysterious fires plague Johnstown, and the adventurers must investigate. Various leads and clues point to the reclusive remnant of a lunar cult, hinting at a potentially explosive political situation should their identities be revealed. Further clues send the adventurers into the ruins beneath the fallen lunar temple. There they must defeat a powerful foe and restore peace to Johnstown. And there we have it. There's the pitch. Very different, very exciting. So this isn't going to be necessarily hack and slash. It's very different to the first adventure we were presented with. And this one is clearly urban and has much more of an investigative slant. And what I really like about it is it's set in Johnstown. So we've been given the setting, and we're actually going to play in it. So this is good. All right, now, this one is slightly more complex than the first adventure, and that seems fair enough to me. And I'm going to open up by saying I really, really like this adventure. And one of the reasons I really like this adventure is because it is unbelievably Gloranthan. It's so Gloranthan that I'm not entirely sure that I could lift this and use it in any other game. And that's a good thing. 
yeah, I'm sure I could take the basics of the plot, but it is it has Glaranthan stuff in it that you couldn't just substitute into any other thing. And that's exactly what I got into this game for. Show me Glorantha, I was saying in my head at the start of all this, and A Fire in the Darkness absolutely does that. We have got specific Glaranthan things that happen in a specifically Glaranthan way, and if you wander around doing your usual murder hobo shtick with this, you are not going to get very far at all. So this is the real deal, as far as I can tell. And I'm very, very excited about running this. So let's have a look at the adventure outline. Spoiler alert, bound to talk about some stuff from this adventure. So again, fast forward if this is not something you want to hear about. I won't be too spoilerific, but it's, it's kind of inevitable, isn't it? So what have we got? We have got a lunar temple to the Seven Mothers. So there's a bit there to help me out as a Glorantha neophile, and it explains what all of this is, and that's great. And this temple was attacked and pretty much ruined when we have the rebellion of Kalia Starbrow, which again we went through at the Battle of Dangerford. So this temple is all busted up and is now kind of, it's got a bit of a haunted house vibe to it. It's got guards outside and no one goes there. So it's post-rebellion um, and that's nice. So we've already got some stuff that really can't happen anywhere else. It's specific to the Grantham history. And the lunar cult members who were there have not all fled. So they're still kind of operating uh, incognito in Johnstown itself. So that's a nice little thing going on too. What's worse is that the central problem we've got here is that the temple had a type of spirit guardian. And this is where, and again, forgive my pronunciation, the witter or the whiter, that's what it's called. It's bolded term. And this was, well, I saw this three books ago and didn't know what it was. It didn't say then. It does say now. So this is a spirit guardian of the temple. And this particular spirit guardian has survived the destruction and this one is now on a little bit of a mad rampage because its temple has been destroyed. Which is a cool enough idea in the first place. So off it goes at night and it kind of goes around and um, making a bit of mischief, really. It's been separated from its binding object. And that's really how the whole thing can be wrapped up. If we can just get it back with its binding object, then everything will be great. Now, this is where the clever bit comes in. This is not just some spirit hunt or monster hunt in a fantasy city. What's happened is that the remnants of the lunar cult who were part of the temple, they've become aware of this guardian spirit running amok. And they're trying to stop it too. And unfortunately, in doing so, they become part of a bigger problem. So what looks like a random series of arson attacks around the town is actually really just these lunar cultists trying to put a stop to what their their spirit guardian has been up to. And the player characters will move from scene to scene, from person to person, location to location, and gradually that will start to become unveiled that actually there's a lunar cult still about trying to do the right thing, not getting it right in doing so, and what do the PCs do about this? As an investigation, this really works. The scenes make sense. The places you go to make sense. The clues are there. They are obvious enough, but not too obvious. It's a really nice Goldilocks blends of clue dispersal. You've also got some opportunities to 
get deeper into Glaranthan stuff and the whole stuff about the Lunars without becoming massively bogged down. You get to meet the NPCs from Johnstown Book again, and this time they are they come to life a little bit more, so there's some stuff happening. You get to be heroes. There are some fires to deal with, which are always fun in games. You get to understand a little bit more about the whole Lunar thing. And finding the arsonist is quite fun in and of itself. The whole thing then wraps up in, well, there's multiple possible endings, I suppose, but it's most likely that you'll end up doing something that's almost like a dungeon crawl, a very, very, very short one, really a single room, but you'll be in that ruined lunar temple looking to put the pieces back together, and that's done in a really interesting way. Yes, this thing could end up with a massive fight. It doesn't have to, but it might do. And there's even potentially a little side quest where you might leave town to go and find the lunar cultists who are camping nearby. And they've all got really nice personalities. And I guess I guess this, this it's not obviously going to turn into a big scrap with baddies, which is what loads of you have been doing in your call-ins by helping me out here, saying the lunar guys, they're not necessarily the baddies. They were the occupiers. And some of these are their native to this part of the world but they were working with the occupiers in that time and now they're not so there's all kinds of quandaries and dilemmas and personality issues that need to be solved before you get to what is potentially like i say this mini dungeon crawl which will result in a really interesting kind of spirit combat thing going on Um, and there's just loads and loads of stuff to get your teeth into so this is like multi-session stuff for sure You will want to take some notes as you go, both as a GM and probably as the player as well. And every little thing that you touch when you do this is specifically Gloranthan. It's no way could you pick this up and drop it into a D&D game or Dragon Warriors or Warhammer. It's specifically Gloranthan and it is all the better for being that. As I read through this, there was a few head-scratchy moments where I had to go back and check a few things, but that's because there's so much kind of novel content in it. And I just think it's great. It's a really interesting thing that is going to take you around the setting that's been presented. It's going to give you Glorantha stuff as it happens, and your characters are going to be asked to do a lot more than just pull out a broadsword and smack something with it. It delivers on all those four bullet points at the start of this book. So, well done, KSEM, and whoever specifically wrote this adventure. I think it's an absolute doozy. So that's two for two at this stage. Rough Landing really, really delivers on an introductory scenario. A Fire in the Darkness, another 24-page adventure, but with much, much more to it, and I think we'll take a bit of time to play. And that's two scenarios I really want to get into. And I should say as well, they do seem to link together. Although the book says you can play them in any order you want to, why would you do that? Just play a rough landing. Then when you finish doing that, go back to your characters and play a fire in the darkness. I think there's some good adventures to be had here. And it is absolutely making all of the other stuff that I've read and dealt with so far on this podcast come to life. Great. That leaves us with the Rainbow Mounds which I think I'll save for another podcast. This is a much, much, much beefier adventure. It's almost half the book in itself. So I think we'll cover that another time. But for now, I'm smiling about my RuneQuest starter set investment of time 
Um, it's all coming together really, really well. Remains to be seen if the Rainbow Mounds can really push it over the edge. So far, so good. Now, at this stage, once again, thanks ever so much for listening. It's been really, really gratifying. This podcast is about a month in, and I've got a huge amount of downloads to this podcast and loads of listeners. So that's amazing, more than I ever thought would be true. And also huge thanks again to anybody who's taken the time to call in, leave a voice message for the show. You can do that by pressing a button at Anchor, where you can find this app, uh, where you can find this podcast. Uh, please do leave a message. I love to get them. Um, and speaking of which, we got some call-ins about the last couple of episodes. So let's check in with them now. Hi Baz, it's Stephen. I'm glad to see that you've had a good experience of gaming in Glorantha. It's a great place to be and a lot of it can depend on just how good your GM is. Sounds like your GM, the book, was a good one. Anyway, one of the things your session made me think about was what it's for and who it's for, this whole starter set. And it'd be good to see if you could think about that too, whether it's for the perspective player or the prospective GM. Sounds like if you're a prospective player that going straight to the solo quest is possibly the best thing you can do. As you said, a great intro immediately into the gaming aspect takes you through all the things you need to do during the game. It's the GM that needs to know more and it'd be good to know your thoughts on that. Cheers. Hey Stephen, great to hear you calling again mate. Um, Yes, yes and yes. Very, very good points. Uh, You are absolutely right. I have many, many thoughts about what this starter set is actually for. Um, I've been scratching my head late into the night sometimes, probably overthinking it massively. But it's to the extent that I don't just want to drop in an answer to your query right now. I think what I'll do is I'll work through the adventures. You've been listening to this podcast so far. You'll know that I've covered two of the three. Um, And when we get to the end, I'm going to sum this stuff up. I am still in three or four minds about this starter set, um, and that might be an issue in itself, but I've definitely got thoughts. I definitely have opinions. Let me bring them all together into one podcast, please, mate. I'm going to get there eventually. So, yeah, thanks for raising it. Really important. Cheers, mate. Hi Baz, Thermal Tatsuma here. Just listened to the Solo Quest episode. That's really interesting. I played it, the version that's on the Chaosium website and that's free for anybody to, to use and it's uh, it's really well done. It handles all the, the dice rolling and the record keeping for you. Um, so it's a, something everyone should go and have a go at least to see if it's of interest to them. Um, it's a good introduction to the setting and to the rules, I think. Um, so I, I really think this should have been the, the, the first thing in the box, as judging from, from what you've said, uh, just just to, so you can hit the ground running and get an idea of, of where you're going. And then when you pick up the other books, maybe it'll make a bit more sense. Uh, I don't know. I'm not uh, a game designer, but um, that's what I would do, I think. Uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing uh, thoughts on, on the next book and how it all comes together for you. Cheerio. Bye. Thanks, Neil. And welcome to the show. 
yeah, really good points. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed uh, the stuff that I had to say about Solo Quest. You, you're dead right to point out, and maybe I didn't, but um, yes, that Solo Quest adventure is available on the KSCM website. It's something you can click through uh, and play it just with your screen. And clearly you could do that solo without investing in the whole starter set. And it's really good that they've done that. I think you are right as well. This is this was this was the jumping in point, wasn't it? Would it have made sense without knowing about all of the rules and all of that grand setting? But it probably would. You probably could have done that with maybe a stripped-down character sheet in the front of the solo quest book and and off you go. I think that would have been a decent game design, formatting, layout, marketing. You need all kinds of skills to decide whether that's a good thing to do or not. Um, I'm just glad it was there, and I'm glad that I persisted to get to that third book. Um, it definitely made things come to life for me. No, so I really appreciate your call on that one, mate. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. Cheers. Hi Baz, it's Stephen again. You've been making me think about when I was learning RuneQuest and way back when the adventure was easy. We were Orlanthe, we were Orlanth, we were Humact. The Lunars were the enemy. The Solar Cults were the enemy. The Darkness was the enemy. Chaos was the enemy. Adventure was easy because there was enemies everywhere. Now the setting's matured. People want to play trolls. They want to play lunars. They want to play solar cults. They even want to play god learners. So it's made everything a little bit more even. I think there's a market opportunity for Coosium. They could put out several starter sets. One's an Arlanthe, one's a Lunar, one's a Darkness. And it could give a different perspective in each. And obviously as Game Boys would want to get them all. Now there's an idea. Wouldn't that be interesting? That sounds like a cracking idea. You're right, everyone would buy all of those things, wouldn't they? Now, these things aren't trivial to put together, but I'm reminded of what Fantasy Flight Game did with their Star Wars RPG, where they put out three starter sets, three core games, all taking a slightly different perspective on the Star Wars universe. And that's only Star Wars, where, relatively speaking, things are pretty cut and dried a lot of the time. I think that would be a fascinating experiment for Garantha. And... And yeah, I kind of wish I'd been there in the early 80s when things were a bit simpler to get into, a bit more straightforward, a bit more point me at the bad guys. Let's go. It is definitely much more nuanced now, more mature, as you say. Um, and that comes at a price. Uh, multiple starter sets. Are you listening, KRCM? Hey Baz, it's Ludovic again. Um, I'd like to ask what you mean when you say that you still don't know what to do in RuneQuest. Uh, the first couple pages of the first two books tell you what to do in RuneQuest, which is to go on adventures for your people, serving your temple, fighting for your tribe, freeing Sartar, and so on. So maybe what you mean is that you don't know how to do that? which would be totally fair. The default adventuring site, Johnstown, has a rather bland and factual write-up that doesn't really immediately conjure many exciting adventure ideas. So uh, is that what you mean? That you vaguely know what it's about, but you don't know how to do it? Or um, is it something else? Anyway. Hey, Ludovic. Yes, yes, and yes, and yes, and yes, and yes, and yes again <laughs> to all of your questions, which isn't very helpful, is it? Um, what do I mean? Well, given that, 
I kind of know how to do role-playing games by now, and I think a lot of people will do when they pick up this starter set. Um, I know how to play games in loads of different settings. And a lot of games come with what you would call a core activity these days. I think I first heard that uh, from Robin Laws, and there's a man who knows what he's talking about. If a game can give you a core activity, if you know what it is you've got to do, then it's a lot easier to get that done. It's not entirely necessary in games, but I like games where it is a bit more obvious, especially if I'm just coming to it fresh. If you come into something fresh, you want to know, well, what is it we're supposed to do? And then you can go and do it. That sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? Now, now you say that they they tell you what you're going to be doing. You can go on adventures. Well, that begs a lot of questions. What are those adventures? How do you go on those adventures? Yeah, there's a how element to it, but but what are adventures in Glorantha? Going on stuff for your cult. Like what? These are the questions that I've had early on. They are being answered now. Again, you'll have listened to the first part of this podcast if you're hearing this, and you will know that I've been through those the solo quest and the first two adventures in the book. It is making it clearer, but they've left it very late to tell me that sort of thing. And I don't think it's enough to just suggest that you can do you can do anything. You can just wander around and you know adventure. Adventuring means things. It means things. And if it doesn't mean something, it needs to be defined a little bit especially if you've got disparate characters from various tribes and clans all coming together. If you, if you take those 14 NP, those fourteen PC portfolios that are supplied, some of them seem to have connections, some of them don't. It's all a bit it's difficult to be completely objective when you're writing this kind of stuff and you come with it decades of knowledge and and the rest of it but trust me as someone who's brand new and fresh to it i'm trying to leave preconceptions at the door there are some unsaid things now some of this comes to the fact that this is a starter set and as Stephen already mentioned earlier on and, and a couple of other callers as well what does a starter set even mean so this is actually quite a big question ludovic and you know and i appreciate your viewpoint on this massively maybe it's really obvious to you and i'm overthinking this but Hey, if I wasn't overthinking this stuff, there wouldn't be a podcast. And where's the fun in that? Appreciate your call. Thanks, mate. By the way, I suppose I should do some totally shameful plug here if I can. Feel free to ignore this message if you want. But uh, when I wrote my review of the starter set, I indeed lamented that Johnstown was one of the weakest points of the box, especially compared to the excellent Ubers-like booklet in the Warhammer starter set. Uh, as you know, I host a podcast about Glorantha called The Gold Learners, and one of our latest episodes tries to fix this problem. We try to come up with uh, richer gaming material for Johnstown, like adventure seeds and factions and stuff like that, while limiting ourselves to uh, what setting info is in the starter set so that, uh, you know, it doesn't reference anything you wouldn't know about. So anyway, hopefully it might be useful to you or to some listeners. Cheers. (laughs) 
<laughs> I've got no problem with that at all, Ludovic. Thank, thank you. Yeah, by all means, by all means, plug your excellent podcast and the extra materials that you've put together. Um, I know you've got some stuff that's heading to the Johnstown Compendium pretty soon as well, if not already. So good luck with your ventures. I really appreciate the insights that you bring to this cast and other things too. So thank you and thank you all for your call-ins for this week. That is about it. In the spirit of plugging things, I feel I should mention, for those who don't know, that this is very much a side gig for me. Uh, my main podcasting activity is for many, many years now. I've been the co-host of What Would the Smart Party Do? with my very good friend Gaz, and we've been co-hosting that for a long time now. And that's our general RPG podcast. We do interviews we do deep dives, we do a little smattering of actual play, nothing that would frighten the horses, and lots of really lengthy discussions about every aspect of role-playing and the role-playing culture around that. Um, head over to What Would the Smart Party Do? Because, as of the time of this recording, our latest recording um, is a companion piece to what I'm doing right now. So Gaz is an, a veteran RQ player from way back in the day, and the two of us discuss the history of that game and its publications and a lot more about Glamantha, uh, a kind of a wider remit than this podcast has where I'm sticking to the starter set and finding my way through it. Um, I think you'll really get a kick out of uh, what we do over at the Smart Party cast. I'm sure most of you have heard of it. Please do give it a listen. We'd be very grateful. As I continue to be grateful for the listeners that I have to this too. So we're heading into February now. Um, we're closing in on the end of the stuff, but I don't think I'm closing in on the end of materials to discuss. Please keep your call-ins coming. They really are a massive motivator. Um, it's really good to hear from you. I'm still enjoying this process. A little bit more to go. So next time, we're going to head to the Rainbow Mounds and, um, well, we're going to see what is going on underneath there. Until next time, this has been RuneQuest Year Zero. I've been Baz. And uh, my Glorantha is varying. Bye.